0: We're going to read from Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses one through twelve. It's page five seventy-five in the Bibles in front of you. If you're here and you don't have a Bible and you would like to take one with you, um, they're available there in the chair. You're welcome to take that as a gift. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Kamey. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. We thank you constantly for your word because your word is an everlasting source of life for us. And so, God, we turn our attention to you. We thank you that... You are going to speak to us through your word as you have so many times. Lord, I ask right now that you would um, allow us to see that you are a God who vindicates those who are suffering, who vindicates those who are are persecuted. And Lord, I thank you that you also are a God who punish wickedness. You punish unrighteousness and a God for the not for uh, some just sense of cruelty but because of the glory of your own great name and so we thank you for that lord we thank you god for both the mercy and the severity of god we thank you for that lord god i I pray that you would just be with me as i preach this word enable me make me to do what i otherwise would not be able to do and that is to bring honor to you through the preaching of your word ask all this in jesus name amen all right. Well, congratulations. We have made it to 2 Thessalonians. We did it. You didn't think we were going to do it, did you? We thought we would just going to hover around 1 Thessalonians forever, but we did it in just under 14 weeks. So Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians was written very shortly after the first one. We know this because the three missionaries that planted the church of Thessalonica, we read about this in Acts 17. Those three missionaries are also mentioned at the opening lines of the first letter. Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, you might know him better from the book of Acts, is Silas. They're, they're all mentioned again in the opening of the second letter. Why is that significant? It's because they're obviously still together at the time of this writing, of the writing of the second letter. Um, we know that later on, Timothy became a pastor in Ephesus, and interestingly enough, Silas isn't mentioned again in the book of Acts, the history of the early days of the church, after Paul's second missionary journey ends, the one on which he planted the church at Thessalonica. After the first letter was delivered um, to them and they got it and they read it, Paul got word that some of the things that he had written to them about were still unclear. Have you ever had the experience of reading the Bible? And coming away and going, huh? Have you ever done that? And if you haven't, you haven't read long enough or deeply enough. And that's what happened to the Thessalonians. Things were unclear, but it was worse than that because other things that Paul had said had been intentionally distorted by people in their area with bad intentions. People who were opponents of the gospel. And furthermore, as probably a combination of both of these things, there were reports of bad behavior and bad thinking that were occurring in Thessalonica, and Paul decided that he needed to write a second letter to address those things pastorally. Now, the two letters were both written during Paul's 18-month stay in Corinth. Corinth is about 355 miles away from Thessalonica, and we read about that time in Paul's ministry in Acts eighteen, the time between the two letters is probably not more than a few months. We, we call this uh, in, in the understanding of that culture. we call that a pretty quick response. Now that may seem like a long time, a few months. Might seem like a long time for us to call that a quick response, but I want you to remember that travel in those days was mostly on foot over mountains, through rivers, that sort of thing, and there was no postal service as we understand it. either you used someone you knew or a private courier to get messages there and there 's all kinds of peril that uh, could, that could ensue once that that process happened so a few months later, um, uh, Paul gets a response, and then he sends. Uh, A response to them. And he begins like he uh, uh, begins almost all of his letters. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I said this to you last week is the way Paul ended first Thessalonians, but I want you to to understand that the gospel is summed up in these two words. If anybody ever asks you, what is the gospel? You can begin just by telling the gospel is all about grace and peace. See, the gospel is summed up by the grace. Grace is unmerited favor. That just means that you have received something that you did not earn, that you didn't do anything to get. Grace is unmerited favor, and it's been bestowed on us because of Jesus. And the peace that we have with God is resulting from that grace. Next, Paul offers sincere thanksgiving for the church. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Notice that he says that they ought to give thanks and that it is, is right. Thankfulness, Paul is saying, is the legitimate and necessary response in the face of the persecution that they're facing. Remember that persecution we talked about all through First Thessalonians? Guess what? It hasn't stopped. It hasn't let up. It's still happening. There's persecution being poured out on these poor saints over and over and over. And in spite of all their doctrinal confusion, which they have in response to the first letter, Paul still says, we ought to give thanks for you. So he's saying this. Now, I want you to hear this. This doesn't just apply to a first century church. It applies to our 21st century church. He's saying that neither their hard times, nor their imperfect wisdom, nor their weak faith invalidates who they are in Christ. That's good news. That was your cue. It's good news. When, when you have weak faith, raise your hand in a spirit of honesty if you ever have weak faith. Chris was the first one up. I appreciate that, buddy. I, I join him in that. Have you ever had imperfect wisdom about the Scriptures? Raise your hand. Have you ever had um, hard times that made it really difficult to follow Jesus? Raise your hand. So in all these things, Paul is telling them it does not invalidate who they are in Christ, and more importantly, it doesn't invalidate the good things that the Holy Spirit is doing in their midst. Later in his life, Paul would write the book of Romans, and in that book he would famously say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? I am sure neither things present nor things to come will be able to separate us from, From the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Paul goes on to tell them, "Your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing." Now, you might remember, but Paul prayed this for uh, for this to be the case for this church. In First Thessalonians three eleven through thirteen, he prayed that their love would increase, that their faith would grow roots, and guess what? It happened just as he prayed. Imagine that God answers prayer. Regardless of the persecution, the faith of their church, in spite of all that opposition, is growing roots. It's deepening. It's getting a foundation. It's becoming more concrete. The devotion and the sacrifice of the believers for one another is swelling in the middle of, of great trouble, great persecution. And so Paul does what any any person would do. He brags on this church, this Thessalonian church, to all of the other churches. How fun would that have been for Paul to come to your church and say, Man, you guys are a good church, but you're nothing like the Thessalonians. They're awesome. Paul says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. Their faith was not wobbling no matter what the devil threw at them. That's important. Because my faith has often wobbled when the devil starts pitching feathers at me. I'm just being honest. And these guys were getting pelted with rocks, probably literally, and they weren't budging. Paul's bragging on them for that. He is not boasting. Get this, because of the way we sometimes look about when we boast. We boast when prayers are answers. Paul, however, isn't boasting because God has delivered them from trouble. He's boasting because they haven't flinched even when they're right smack dab in the middle of it. Many of us believe that someday if the clouds will just clear, if the trouble will just end, then at that moment it will be glorious and we'll open our mouths and we'll praise him. But that is not what we signed up for. That's not biblically at all what we signed up for. We promised to live for Jesus not because we were given a guarantee of luxury, of comfort, of ease, but we signed up to live for him because he is glorious and he is worthy. That's why we do it. A believer's joy isn't tied to favorable circumstances. So Paul told them to rejoice always. Good times, bad times, rejoice always. He had told them that they had a God who was very present in their time of need. So he told them. Pray without ceasing. Call on that God. That same God had promised to sustain them until the day that they were glorified. So Paul reminded them to give thanks in all circumstances. He said that all this rejoicing, all this praying, all this giving thanks was the fulfillment of God's perfect will for them. Paul explains the wisdom of God in the middle of all their suffering. This is important because sometimes when we're suffering hard times, what's our first response? Hello, God, are you still there? Did I did did the call get dropped here? Are you still around? I, I, Ginger and I pray like that all the time. I know none of y'all do, but pray for us, would you? Because we sometimes feel abandoned. I know y'all never do. But Paul is going to do us all a great favor. He's going to explain the wisdom of God right in the middle of all, this, all that they're suffering. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Standing firm, this is what he means by that, standing firm shows God's judgment is righteous. Let me explain. To better explain that reality... Paul is going to point them again, as he did all through 1 Thessalonians, to the coming of the Lord and what it promises both for them and for their wicked persecutors on that day. But what he's saying here about being proven worthy of the kingdom of God is that their perseverance demonstrates that God is on their side. How so? Because God is not letting their faith and their hope evaporate, and he's sustaining them and promises to sustain them even until the final bell. Enduring patiently doesn't make them worthy. That is not what Paul's saying. Only Jesus, only his, his grace makes us worthy. But but enduring patiently shows that they're the ones who are worthy of entrance into the kingdom because of their faithfulness. Even if it looks like the bad guys are succeeding for a time. You will, if you live long enough, experience a time when no matter how deep your faith in Christ, it will appear that the bad guys are winning. Brace yourself. It's going to happen. But over and over, let me remind you, in, in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, you should read that later this afternoon, great promises over and over seven different times are made to those who overcome. Who those who are faced with enormous obstacles and through faith in Christ, through through an, an, an outpouring of his grace, overcome their difficulties. These promises are made to people who don't give up. The Thessalonians are proving themselves worthy of entrance into the kingdom by their endurance. Let me ask you, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't. Let me ask you, how does that reality put our day-to-day struggles to believe, to forgive, to grow in holiness? How does all what they endured put that in perspective for us? How easy is is it for us to either be tempted to throw into the towel or just flat out throw in the towel instead of taking the opportunity in those moments to be clothed in the strength of Christ to press on. Both the Thessalonians and and you and I, all of us, let me remind you, have been given the same resource. We've been freely given the Holy Spirit of God. And, And as recipients of that gift, we are made by God, Romans 8 says, to be more than conquerors. And this, in spite of All of our trials and afflictions. And when we rely on God's strength, that's exactly who we'll be more than conquerors. We'll be people that have a long testimony of stuff that that should have killed us but didn't because the, the strength of the Holy Spirit inside of us helped us to overcome. I'm sure that this church in Thessalonica still wanted to know when and how all this suffering, all this pain was going to end. They were like, nice thoughts, Paul, help us here. This is, this is real. We're losing friends and family. Is it going to get better? Or is the Christian life that we entered in upon only one of pain and heartache? Is it, is it only subject to cruel harassments of both the, both the devil and the unrighteous? Are we just subject to, to all this constant pain and suffering? Paul had already told them, in the first book, you'll remember chapter 5, the fate of their tormentors. That's what he said. Talking about the day of the Lord, and he said the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But now he's going to elaborate on the coming judgment of, of, of God's, Opponents, and he's going to do that by basing all of his statements in the justice of God. He says, Indeed, God considers it just, fair, right, honorable to repay with affliction those who afflict you. A.W. Tozer said of God's justice in his classic, The Knowledge of the Holy. He said, Everything in the universe is good to the degree that it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. God is his own self-existent principle of moral equity. And when he sentences evil men or rewards the righteous, he simply acts like himself from within, uninfluenced by anything That is not himself. What is he saying? He's saying that when God takes vengeance, it's always just. It's always the right thing. When you and I take vengeance, as we're often tempted, it's usually or always from a sinful desire to vindicate ourselves. How dare you? I will make you pay. But vengeance for God is always about restoring holy justice. It's never unholy because God is perfectly holy. It's never unrighteous because God is perfectly righteous. Therefore, Romans 12 tells us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That's great advice, great counsel. But leave it rather to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What I want you to hear this morning is that God judges all sin. Hold on, Mark, I thought you were a grace church. I thought you were, I talked about how much forgiveness and love there is in Jesus. This, that offends me that you say God judges all sin. You may even stand up and protest and say, I have been forgiven. My sin hasn't been judged. Oh, come on. Come on. Have you been here so long? Have you called yourself a Christian so long and still don't understand the first thing about the cross? To say that your sin hasn't been judged? You know nothing about the cross. Wrath did not come pouring out of heaven on Jesus Christ that day for his own sin. It was your sin's. It was my sin. Wrath definitely has been poured out on your sin. That was what was being dealt with that day. On the cross as the Son of God hung bleeding, crying, dying. It was your sin. Oh, it's been judged. And it has been judged with holy vengeance and if it had not been you would have no reason to ever hope you could be forgiven see all the unrepentant tormentors of christ's holy church have an inescapable future judgment awaiting them one for which they will not be able to raise a just accusation against god No one in that day is going to wag their finger in the face of God and say, you're unfair, you're unjust, you're unholy, you're unrighteous for for dealing with my sin. Their their punishment will be fully deserved. It will be undeniably just. But what will it look like? I promise you this morning that God will surely balance the books forever on the day that He says He will grant relief to you and to all of us who are afflicted as well. God's going to balance the books. Nothing's going to be left undone, undealt with, ignored, forgotten. All believers all across time who have stayed faithful, when poorly treated, when viciously persecuted, or mercilessly afflicted, will be gloriously vindicated as as God proves before the entire watching world who belonged to him and who did not. But we wait. We wait because we're in the middle of the story, not the end. We wait. We remain steadfast. And we hope In the middle of knowing that those who die in their sin will be fearfully judged, we hope, we hope that they escape that judgment. Even as they... Persecute us and our brothers and sisters in Christ, our biggest prayer is that they don't have to face judgment. It's an amazing thing if you ever study through open doors or or voice of the martyrs, the the people that are being persecuted right now in horrific ways all around the U.S., you know, or all around the world rather, you know what one of the most common prayers that they ask for when they ask for prayer is that their tormentors, their persecutors would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that is what we're instructed to pray. That's the way we're instructed to live so that this, such a thing is possible. Uh, Paul wrote about it in 2 Timothy. He said, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. I'm not loading my shotgun ready to take care of anybody who persecutes me. I must not be quarrelsome. I must be kind to who? Y'all yeah, got to say it better than that. Kind to who? Able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. These words were written by a man who persecuted the believers in Jesus Christ. And God gloriously granted him repentance, and the world has never been the same. He wrote most of the New Testament. He escaped from the snare of the devil after the devil thought he had him in his grasp to do his will. He escaped because God granted him repentance. So it's not our job as the church to be waiting for the day when all of those mean unbelievers get what's coming to them. They will get what's coming to them. But the Bible says in Ezekiel that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So we have no business taking pleasure in that either. But make no mistake about it. These are the kind of things that preachers hate having to preach. But if you're going to preach the whole counsel of God's word, eventually you're going to preach things like this. We'd much rather preach just how nice and wonderful and grace and blessings and all that stuff But make no mistake, because the justice of God will not be delayed forever. It won't. The clock is ticking. All of the time will eventually run off the clock, and eventually it's going to be game over. And when will this be? Paul says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might all of this 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 outpouring of God's vindication will happen on uh, when Jesus returns there will be no more delays all the payments will uh, for unrepented sin For for defiance of God, all of the payments will come due on that day. And he will appear with his angels, the Bible says, in flaming fire. I don't know what that means, but it's terrifying. For the sinner, this terrible sight will take their breath away. They will have no breath to lift up an accusation, to lift up a curse. Their breath will be gone. It'll take their breath away. Two types of people are going to suffer on that day. The Bible says those who don't know God and those who refuse to obey the gospel. Those who don't know God are those who cling to false religion or who have rejected any notion of a creator, though the Bible says there is ample evidence for him. It also ex- includes those who have had the external appearance of a connection with the Son, religious people, church people, but to whom Christ will say on that day, Depart from me. I never knew you. It also says those who do not obey the gospel. These are those who hear the good news. Maybe over and over and over again in a church service like this. Maybe through a friend. Maybe through any other means they've heard the good news and they have rejected it. Or in arrogance they've modified it. Deciding to rely instead on good works for salvation. And no longer... Though the gospel literally means good news, no longer will it be good news for them. But now it is the very sentence of doom. Hebrews 2, three. I read from Hebrews earlier, Hebrews 2 in fact, and it says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? People all over the world this morning are sitting in church services like this knowing that it is time to turn to Christ, to repent of their sins, put their faith in Him, and and instead they're just neglecting the salvation that's being offered to them. The nature of their punishment here is even described as a punishment of eternal destruction. It's called a punishment because every single person who suffers it will be responsible for their own damnation. No one is going to be able to look to God and say, I didn't know, I didn't have a chance, I didn't, I, I didn't know. The Bible says creation declares God's majesty. God does not punish innocent people. But the punishment is also described here as eternal destruction. Destruction, obviously, means utter ruination. There is no coming back from what awaits those on that day. You know, we, we, there's all kinds of TV shows and movies about post-apocalyptic societies. There will be none of that. There'll be nothing. It's over. When it's over, it's over. Eternal means that no one is simply going to be annihilated, wiped out, consciousness removed. No, but instead they will suffer ruin eternally and forever. The promise is that this eternal destruction will take place removed from the presence of God with no benefit from His saving power. Now that may not mean anything to you sitting here today, saved or unsaved. But just imagine if you can for a moment, and probably none of us can imagine it in its fullness, what a torment to be fully aware of the existence of the mercy of God while in hell and yet have no Hope whatsoever of accessing that mercy, that grace, that power, completely cut off from it. It'll be like those who, who treading water, watch the ark float float away during the flood of Noah's time. Repentance will no longer be an option on that day. But that's only half the story. For those who have obeyed the gospel. It is an entirely different story. Praise God. What will this day be like for them? Paul helps us get a picture of it. He says, He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed Because our testimony, the testimony of the gospel to you was believed. He says to be glorified in his saints. Not to be glorified by his saints, but to be glorified in his saints. That doesn't just mean that the saints will praise him, which they certainly will. And throughout all eternity they will. But but that all that he died for, all that Jesus died to purchase, will be finally seen in them. All of it. Jesus... Today is not as glorified in me as he will be on that day. I want to live a life that glorifies Jesus. But guess what? Don't tell anybody. The doors are shut. We might need to erase this from the recording. But I still sin sometimes. Don't tell anybody that. But it's true. Sometimes, this is where it gets really personal, sometimes I sin in really bad ways. So don't don't look at me like that. So my wife does too. You wouldn't believe what she says to me sometimes. But just kidding. She never says anything mean to me at all. But so so my life is prohibited by my own frailty, my own weakness, my own sin from glorifying Jesus. Like I'm going to glorify him on that day. All that he died for to to revolutionize, to transform, to recreate Mark Sharp will be finally seen on that day. And I'm going to stand before him entirely, 100% free from sin. I will be absolutely delivered from the possibility of any further pollution. And I'm going to be standing there in a glorified, resurrected body. And I will be a trophy of his grace forever. Nothing's going to change that nothing's going to pollute it or corrupt it all of us together as the saints are going to marvel at him and we are going to find him you think you've seen all kinds of movies and paintings of jesus you don't know nothing none of us know anything all of us are going to marvel at him and we're going to find him more beautiful more loving than we ever dared to imagine he is going to blow our minds We're going to examine nail prints in His hands and in His feet and we are going to literally reel what we sometimes, because of our sinfulness, yawn through when we hear it in church. We are going to finally reel from the realization of what He's done for us on the cross. There won't be any obstacles to overcome to understand it. We're going to see it. We're going to know it. And we are going to fall on our faces in worship because of what He's done. And let me tell you something. When you do see Him... I don't know if any of you grew up with a Catholic background, but I'm going to help you out here. You will not see some pale emaciated figure from a crucifix when you see him. Jesus will be fully, fully unrestrained in his glory, just like John saw him in the book of Revelation. If you've never read that, let me help you out. Paul John says that in the midst of the, of the lampstands, he saw one like a son of man. Now listen how Jesus looked there. Never seen a painting like this. He was clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like, white, like wool, like snow. That's not talking about some old decrepit man. That is absolute purity. White like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. You know what that means? No one's going to have a stare down with Jesus. He'll burn right through you. In His holiness and His glory. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. That may mean nothing to you. In Jewish culture of the first century, the feet were considered absolutely filthy parts of your body. To, to, to present your feet to somebody or for someone to touch your feet was so offensive. And John is saying that even his feet are like polished, beautiful metal. He's so beautiful that even his feet are beautiful. Refined in a furnace, and listen to this. There won't be any more. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Because it says here, his voice was like the roar of many waters. His voice will silence Niagara Falls, Victoria Falls, all those things will be nothing compared to the voice of God Almighty. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And in his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Ever tried to stare into the sun? I don't recommend it, by the way. I don't want you, you know, come showing up Tuesday morning blind and saying, saying uh, Pastor told me to. And it says that Jesus' face is to like stare at the noonday sun in all of its glory. Can you imagine? And the answer is no. None of us can imagine. Paul says that they will see him for one and one reason only. Not because of their good works, not because they gave some amount of money to religious organization, not because grandma was a pillar of the community. Paul says that they will see him because our testimony to you was believed. Be encouraged, my brothers. Be encouraged, my sisters. Your trust in the gospel, no matter how you feel, on November 10th, 2019, your trust in the gospel has not been for nothing. No matter what, Your temporal circumstances right in this hour appear to be God is going to balance the books. The righteous in Christ, because we're only righteous in Christ, will be rewarded. The wicked aren't getting away with anything. Hitler thought he could put a bullet in his brain and get away with it. He ain't getting away with it. Osama bin Laden was taken out by seals in an instant, probably never even realized what was happening, he ain't getting away with it. No matter what you think about his demise, Jeffrey Epstein ain't getting away with it. God will balance the books. So Paul, as he did a couple times in the first book, ends this passage with a prayer. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul concludes with a prayer that God will make them worthy of their calling. You remember that he already said that their endurance was evidence that they're worthy of the kingdom. And now he prays that God's refining work in them through their trials, not in spite of them, wouldn't be for nothing. They would continue to be refined, transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. Everything that you and I experience as believers... I think some of you might not have really honed in on the word I'm focusing, so I want to say that again. Everything. It might help you if you'll just say that word as loud as you can. Everything. Everything Everything that we experience as believers, the good, the bad, and the ugly, is refined by God into something more precious than gold. Aren't you glad? It's something more precious than gold. Though in this life, with all of its toils and burdens, we may feel only pressure and heat. Someday, we're going to see that that pressure and that heat produced a diamond. Someday, what he has built in us by his word, through our refining, will be revealed but Paul prays for them, not just looking forward to someday. Someday when we hear a trumpet, he, that's important, but that's not only where Paul focused all of his prayer. He also prays for them in this life that every good work of faith that they're pouring into will be fulfilled. I love that phrase. The specific reason is that Jesus may be glorified in them. He wants everything that they intend to do for Christ's glory to to come to pass, to to bear fruit. And and the reason is that Jesus may be glorified in them, but not only that, that they may be glorified in Christ. And all of this, he says, by the grace of the Lord Jesus. So what's the take-home message for today? How do you apply what I have said? It's this. Things are not always as they seem. Even in your life, when wickedness seems to triumph, when righteousness falters, God is keeping perfect records and he promises to vindicate his people. It's not for nothing. But also, God never intended that we're only to expect pain and heartache until the day of our final vindication. Even now, right this second, right this moment, the Holy Spirit is at work to cause our faith in Jesus, just like in Thessalonica, to become more grounded and to cause us to grow in love for each other more and more every day. He is daily making us worthy of his calling and he is fulfilling even now every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And to what end is he doing this? That the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask our communion workers to come. So if I was thinking about what this passage means, what what is it that... that that's a promise that we can hold on to from this message, I would say this. I would say that that we are reminded that Christ sustains us. I would be a liar and a fool and and even really a heretic if I were to tell you some formula, some twisting of scripture to tell you that You're never going to have any more bad times. If you have enough faith or give enough money, you're going to, you know, God's going to bless your socks off and you'll never have any trouble. I would be a heretic if I did that. But I'm not a heretic if I tell you that you're going to face plenty of trouble. You're going to have disappointment. You're going to have heartache. Comma. But Jesus Christ is going to sustain you through it all by the word of his gospel. He is going to sustain you. He's not only going to protect you from it. He is going to sustain you. Jesus is our hope. He is the anchor we sang about earlier. He's our hope. So communion. If I asked you as a just a normal scientific fact what it takes to be sustained. You need a few things. You need... Brain waves. You need oxygen. But one of the things that you desperately need is you got to eat something. How many of you have a mom that you know if they're still around? Anytime you come to their house, they say, "Have you eaten?" Moms want you to eat because it sustains you. And Jesus has laid out a feast for us and told us to come often to feast on Him. This is not bread. He said, this is his body. This isn't a cup of juice or wine. This, this is his blood. He's saying, he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. Be sustained by returning to the same, same things. You know why you're going to avoid all those bad things I talked about th- this morning? Because the testimony of the gospel was believed by you. So what is this all about? It's about choosing to be sustained by remembering the gospel. By remembering how you got here in the first place. By trusting that he was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. The chastisement that brought you peace was placed upon him. All of that sin that you don't want judged, take a deep sigh of relief because it has been judged. Been judged in Jesus, and this blood. You know, I remember kind of used to gross me out when I was a kid. My mom always watched daytime TV, soap operas, and game shows, and things like that. I mean, 80s when they were still on 70s and 80s, and um, they always had these like laundry detergent um, uh, ads where they would say, you know, this one gets out blood, and sometimes kind of gross growing up. They were showing. Bullet wounds, or whatever they were, on, on TV about how to get those out, I guess. I don't know if they were, I don't know if the, the, uh, the laundry you know, detergent cartels were run by gangsters or something. I don't know. But apparently, a lot of people were getting blood on their clothes in the 70s and 80s. But blood is a staining agent. I'm always amazed by this. Blood is a staining agent, but not for you. Blood is a cleansing agent for you. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will soon be white as snow. You have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, healed by the brokenness of His body. And if you'll just remember that, if you'll cling to that, and this is a great way to do it, He'll sustain you. I've adopted this benediction from... Numbers chapter 6 that I've said to you the last couple of weeks i going to say it for as long, until I just figure out something better to do. But it says, and I'll read it to you officially at the end of the service, but it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. You know how he keeps you? The same way he got you in the first place. By the blood, broken body of Jesus. So we're talking about being sustained this morning. Come and feast and be sustained in the remembrance of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Would you stand with me and we'll pray. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, we give thanks. We give thanks for Jesus. Because he is our broken bread. He is our poured out cup. You are the one that keeps us. You are the one who sustains us. And so Lord, we just ask you, to have your way in us, keep us, sustain us. Until that day when you fully vindicate us, until that day when you fully transform us and let us stand in your presence, made new, made clean, we thank you for all your good gifts, but none so good as Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.